0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is, is, and if you do not have a Bible, there's a black one to see back in front of you. If you get to page 887, you'll be with us there in Mark chapter 1. It's really good to be back uh, with you all. We had a good uh, good visit to uh, Crossway International Baptist Church there in, in Germany the last couple of weeks. Uh, you need to know if you give uh, you give uh, tithe and offerings to this place, and we support uh, missions partners around the world, and we like going to check in on them and, and building those partnerships, and uh, Crossway's doing really good work over there, and God's doing some pretty, pretty cool stuff in Berlin. It's nice to see. They actually, uh, a couple months ago, launched their first ever church plant um, to a uh, neighboring uh, university town called Potsdam, and so um, based on the way it worked out with service times, I got to be at both churches last Sunday, and so uh, that was cool to see um, all these university students from around the world checking out their church plant, and so... Um, Good, good, good visit. Really good to be back with you all. It's been a rough, it was a great visit. It's been a rough reentry, And so uh, today feels much more stabilizing just to be with you. Um, I, I still don't know what time it is. I have no idea. I'm, I'm waking up at like two or three in the morning thinking it's time to get up. You know, that'll take a couple of weeks. And um, the day before I came back, oh, we had a family friend in Cloverdale pass away. And so... Um, I immediately had to kind of go tend to that. I did his funeral Friday night, and so it's just been a very unsettled return, Uh, but seeing all your faces and being here this morning just feels like I'm finally home, and so it's good to be back with you, Um, and I want to thank uh, Adam for covering the last two Sundays and the staff for all they picked up, and uh, we're excited to to jump in uh, just the month of October and see where the Lord takes us in the book of Mark. And one just kind of housekeeping item, normally on the first Sunday of the month, we would do communion. Uh, we deserve observe communion, but we are saving that for next Sunday because next Sunday during the 930 hour, we're going to have a combined communion service. So we'll get everybody from both services together uh, to take communion uh, all, all at the same time. And so uh, that is always a valuable experience, one I really want you to Uh, to to set aside time for and be here at 9 30 next week if you can and then we'll also have some important uh, ministry updates and building updates and stuff for you as well and so uh, that'll be an hour you don't want to miss and so please if you aren't in the habit of coming at 9 30 come at 9 30 next week it'll be worth your while and we're going to celebrate another baptism next week as well so we're excited about all that Um, but before we get to that we got to get to today's message and so i'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch out in this Father, we are grateful uh, for the opportunity to just to be here today. We're grateful for what you've already began uh, in inhabiting the praise of your people and meeting us here and in uh, the groups that have met and the fellowship that's happened. Lord, you're already at work. And so we just kind of want to put ourselves in that flow. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that it would not return to you void, but would accomplish everything that you've set forth for it to accomplish today. Uh, that your voice would be loudest, that you, your spirit would move unhindered in this place, uh, that you get the glory from all this. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So in, in my travels recently, I spent a lot of time on a plane going over the Atlantic Ocean. And I had a strategy that I thought was a good idea that ultimately backfired. Uh, when I ordered the tickets for this trip, uh, the, the airline that we used said I got, they allowed you the option of choosing your seat. And there was lots of seats available, and I, really, I knew for sure I didn't want a middle seat, right? Everybody knows that. And so then the choice was, do you want a window seat or do you want an aisle seat? And so I debated back and forth, and I decided, well, it's, you know, it's a nine-hour flight, eight, eight to nine-hour flight over the Atlantic. Hopefully, I'll be able to get some sleep. And so I'm going to choose the window seat with the idea that I could rest my head on the side and just go right to sleep, which is just the dumbest idea ever, Right? There's no way you're going to sleep on a plane. I've never been able to uh, for more than like 20 minutes at a time. And so uh, that, just, that strategy was, it was a terrible choice, and it really backfired on my first flight over the Atlantic because sitting next to me in the aisle seat was a British guy. And my strategy on long flights is pretty simple. I, I don't like disturbing people. And so whenever the person next to me gets up to go to the bathroom, that's when I get up to go to the bathroom, Right. And I thought it was going to work because the first half of the flight, every time the stewardess came by, this guy got a drink. He wanted a coffee and then a tea and then a Sprite and then a water. I'm like, all right, well, this is going to be great. But he just never got up. He just kept sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. And I thought, man, this is, I'm starting to get really uncomfortable now. You know, it's like surely at some point this guy's going to get up and I'm to the point where I'm kind of rocking back and forth in the seat. And I'm like, all right, I've got to ask him. I turn and he's got noise canceling headphones on and he's dead asleep. I thought, oh, boy i like, I've got to wake him up, you know, because the other option is an option I don't even want to say out loud, right? And so, and so I tap him on the shoulder, I'm like, hey, do you mind? And, and he was incredibly gracious, and he got up, and, and he let me out of the seat, and then he just sat back down. I kind of looked at him for a second, like, what in the world? And so I went to the bathroom, came back, and he let me back in, he sat down again, I finally was like, do you ever go to the bathroom? I just have to know, you know? And he the entire eight-and-a-half-hour flight, he never got up. I'm sure that's not healthy, Right. But it's one of the most impressive things I ever saw, and so from now on, right, I'm aisle guy. If I get to choose my seats, I'm aisle guy. I want that freedom to go where I gotta go. But there was a time where I was thankful for the window. There was one moment, and it was on the return flight, and we took off on a very cloudy day. But then, as planes do, it, they they rise in the sky, right? We got above the clouds to where it was just full sun, and we were looking down. clouds, and it was like a mountain range in the sky, and I started snapping pictures of it, and one of these is just a stunningly beautiful scene, right? And this thought hit me, that when I took this picture, I'm I'm somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, have no idea where, and I'm also above the clouds. And so if you think about those two things, I, I am nowhere that humans would have ever seen before a plane like this. And so for thousands of years, this view existed, and no human eye ever saw it. And it's amazing. And it reminded me again of two truths, just how big God is and just how little I am. There's so much that God has made in his glory and in creation that we won't ever see. Do you know how little we know about what's actually in the ocean? We have no clue. Do you know how little we know about what's actually out there in the universe? We have no clue. God's aware of all of it. Right? There's so much about what he thinks and how he operates and what he's up to that we won't ever know or grasp. But do you know what this great, awesome God did for us when he gave us his word? Do you know what he did? He revealed to us everything that we would ever need to know. And in revealing himself to us. There are still aspects of his identity that, are, that can be challenging and difficult to grasp, but we need to work at them. Because in today's passage, in Mark chapter 1, we're going to see the Trinity on display and we're going to see the incarnation on display. And if you don't know what those terms mean, don't worry, we're going we're to define them for you. But we need to recognize this. It's important, even if it's difficult, it's important for us to have a good grasp on what God has revealed to us and what he has told us. LifeWay Research released a survey last week, and they, they polled Americans who, who claim to be Christians, right? So this is, they, they were polling American Christians on matters of theology, and it started on, a, on a sort of a bit of good news that it seems like we American Christians have a decent grasp on the concept and definition of the Trinity, but then it got worse from there very quickly. Because 73% of American Christians surveyed at least partially or fully agreed with this statement, that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. And that is really disturbing. And if you're wondering why that's disturbing, then I'm really glad you're here today. Because I have a clear goal today, I want to use this passage in Mark, where we read about Jesus' baptism and his temptation, to help us understand the full identity of Jesus Christ, and then to help you understand why it matters so very much. And so I'm going to invite Ruth Peelman up to read today's passage. She's going to read for us Mark chapter one verses nine through thirteen. Um, and if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Ruth. Good morning. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by the baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He ran he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Thank you, Ruth. All right, you guys can have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open there to Mark 1. If there are any supporting passages, we'll put them on the screens for you, and there's a lot today. and um, Listen, there's, there are, there's no shortage of angles or teaching lessons or, or things that you can take these two passages. This the story of Jesus' baptism, the story of temptation through. Um, the, the one I've decided on I hope will be clear by the end, and so I hope you'll stay with me as we get to it. In the last two weeks. Uh, Adam covered for us John the Baptist right, as, as we're told about him here in Mark 1 and then elsewhere in, in Luke 7 and John 3 and just really talked about his ministry and his posture. And then here in, in, in Mark chapter 1 in verse 9, Mark begins telling us of these two events and how they occur right after the other. The first is when Jesus comes to John and asks John the Baptist to baptize him. And then if you look at verse 12, it says that immediately after this, Right? A, there wasn't a passage of time. that Immediately after this, after his baptism, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. And that is when Jesus is tempted by Satan. So I like uh, thinking about Jesus as our high priest. I like the idea that his baptism is immediately followed by temptation. Because I'm betting there are some of you who can identify with this, that right after you take a step closer to God, the enemy always has a response, doesn't he? Right? And so in telling us these two events, there, there are actually three pretty big claims that Mark is making. And I want to make sure that we understand them. And the first is this, is that Jesus Christ is fully God. Now, it's incredibly helpful and important for us to know who Jesus is. And the Bible does not leave this in doubt. It doesn't leave this in mystery for us. Right? God reveals himself to us in his word. And one of the truths that we are told is that God is one But he eternally exists in three distinct and different persons, right? God is one in essence, one in nature, and three in person. And this is known as the Holy Trinity. In the Trinity, these, these three persons of the Trinity, they exist in perfect unity and perfect connection and perfect community. And this shapes a lot about who God is, actually, and shapes a lot about the way that he has made us. And we see this language in Genesis 1 when God makes man. Genesis 1 says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And the language there is helpful, right? Though it's a singular God creating. You know, Genesis doesn't say, then the God said. No, it's just then God said. So it's a singular God, but then he uses a plurality of language. He doesn't say, let me make man in my image, does he? God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. That there's the first kind of indication of the Trinity, and the Bible reveals to us these three persons of the Godhead. They are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is God. He is God the Son. He was not created. He is not an angel. He is not even a high-ranking official from heaven. He is the eternal, creating, all-powerful, sovereign Lord. He is the Son in the Godhead. He is not partially God. He is fully God, Colossians chapter 1 says that God was pleased to have all of his fullness, not some of it, all of his fullness dwell in him. And I point this out because in Jesus' baptism, right, we get to see all three persons of the Trinity at work in a single event. Right? In verse 10, it says that as soon as Jesus comes out of the water, right, he rises up from his baptism, two things happen. Number one, he sees the heavens being torn open, and that's significant, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But the second is then God the Spirit shows up, but the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And then in verse 11, God the Father shows up and he speaks. And he says, you are my beloved Son, and with you I'm well pleased. Now, I don't know if you've caught this, but this has been the major theme of Mark 1 so far. In verse 1, Mark states it. This, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he identifies him, the Son of God. Verses 2 and 3, he quotes Malachi and Isaiah, and he uses these prophets to declare the lordship of Jesus. In verses 7 and 8, John the Baptist himself is, is adding to the list of testimonies where he declares the greatness of Jesus. Now in verses 10 and 11, the other persons of the Holy Trinity declare it. The Spirit descends on him like a dove, and God the Father says, this is my Son. You see, the Bible is overtly clear that Jesus Christ is fully God, and one of the ways that it tells us this is repeatedly, it tells us that he has all the attributes of God, that he knows everything, that he has all power and authority, that he depends on nothing outside of himself for life, that he is ruler over everything, that he never began to exist and never will cease to exist, that all things have been created by him and for him. In other words, everything that God is, Jesus is, because Jesus Christ is fully God, And this is why all the Trinity is there and present at his baptism. This is why he could then go and be tempted for 40 days in a wilderness without food to eat and not sin because he is divine in nature. But there's another hugely important truth that these events show us. It's that Jesus Christ is fully man. We see from scriptures and from these two instances that God exists in three distinct persons and Jesus exists in perfect union between two natures. It's kind of two mysteries for the price of one. And these realities about God are so richly deep that we could never mind the fullness of them and yet they remain simple and attainable enough for us to grasp and teach to children. J.I. Packer once wrote, there's nothing in fiction so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. The incarnation is this, that God became man. Now, this wasn't every person in the Trinity. God the Father did not take on human flesh. God the Spirit did not either. But Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on our form. John says this about him in chapter 1 of his gospel. The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he includes John the Baptist's testimony as well, that John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now in his baptism and in his temptation, we actually can see the humanity of Jesus. He was baptized in his own words to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness. Though sinless, he was set an example for all humans to follow after him. He was identifying himself with us. Then he goes into the wilderness where he feels weak and hungry and tired, and he faced temptations the way you and I face temptations, which is a very important thing to do. Because we need to be clear on this. Jesus did not stop being God when he became man. Right? One theologian put it this way, that he remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Jesus did not become God minus some elements of his divinity. He was God plus taking on the fullness of humanity. And these two natures, they don't kind of blend together either, right? The, the entirety of God and the fullness of humanity dwelt in Jesus without changing the other. His deity did not make his humanity superhuman. And his humanity did not make his deity lessen at all. The full essence of both dwelt in God the Son, Jesus Christ. And again, the scriptures confirm this. We read in the Bible how he was born as a baby and from a human mother. How he was weary and thirsty and hungry. How he experienced the full range of human emotions. He marveled at times. He was sorrowful. He was angry and frustrated. He lived on the earth. His body physically died on a cross. He was fully human. And it's actually just as important for us to hold to this truth about Jesus as to the truth that he was fully God. Because here's how the Bible puts it in John, 1 John chapter 4. It says, this is how you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. 2 John 7 Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. We're told in the New Testament that if we do not hold, if we, if we claim that Jesus Christ was not fully man, then the source of that teaching is coming straight from the kingdom of darkness and the spirit of the antichrist. So it's just as important as we hold to this as it is that he was fully God. Now there are different There are a lot of different angles, right, a lot of different things that you can take from Jesus' baptism and temptation, and so why am I digging in on this? Like, why is this the one that I chose? Well, I believe if you combine these two natures of Jesus with these two events, you get to see the most important truth come to fruition, which is the whole purpose behind the Gospel of Mark, which is that Jesus came on a mission of redemption, there's so many different layers to his baptism and temptation, but the overarching theme is that that Jesus Christ came to redeem and he said it so himself by the way. In Luke 19:10 he said the son of man that's him. The son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. This was his purpose. And so we can see from his baptism and his temptation how he was was starting that process early on. And so let me explain that. Back at the beginning, God did this really wondrous thing. We've already quoted this verse once to you this morning, but we'll say it again. Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So at the beginning, God created mankind in his image. The term there is the imago day, the image of God, and this gives every human life immense value. And so this is how we are born. We are born with the image of the Creator on us. But what's the next thing that happens in the Bible? Right after this creation, Genesis chapter 3, Satan arrives and he begins tempting humans. And Adam and Eve do not pass the test. They sin. They break God's command, and the results of this are absolutely devastating, Creation now groans and is burdened under the curse of sin. We saw that in Florida this week, didn't we? That's the result of a creation that's under the curse of sin. Death and suffering are now a part of life. And something permanent happened to those who bear the Imago Dei. Romans 5 tells us what it is. Therefore, Paul writes, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned see, when the first human sin, the Imago Dei was altered. Those who bear God's image now are cursed by sin. We have a sinful nature. It's why Romans 3 says that there's not one of us, not a single one who's righteous. We've all fallen short and sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Deep in our nature, who we are are sinners. And this is a far cry from what the Imago Dei was supposed to look like. So you insert Jesus Christ, come to the scene in Mark 1, he came to make things right again. And we're going to see that all throughout the book of Mark, but it's apparent in these two events. The first thing that Jesus did was that he took on our form, right? John 1, the word became flesh. Here's how Philippians 2 puts it. We are to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, and here's how, by assuming the form of a servant, by taking on the likeness of humanity. Do you see, you see the contrast already being set up? That it, Back in the beginning, God made man in his image, and, so, and now to save us, God himself took on our form in our image. Back in the beginning, Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, and they failed the test, cursing human nature ever since. But when Jesus comes, he does not go out into a garden of perfection. He goes out into the wilderness and does not eat for 40 days, and Satan tempts him, but guess what happens? This time he passes the test. And this is significant, he had to feel what we felt. He had to be tempted like us. He had to pass the test and he had to remain sinless because only one who's fully human can die and only one who's fully God could remain separate from the curse of sin and remain sinless. And So because of this, Jesus Christ, the God-man, became the perfect sacrifice. And we can see this even in his baptism. There's a lot of foreshadowing here. Do you know John the Baptist descended from the line of Aaron? And why that matters is Aaron's descendants were were the ones who served as the high priest under the Old Testament law, and what high priests did, their role, was they offered sacrifices to redeem the people from their sins. And so when Jesus goes to someone from the line of Aaron to be baptized, he's submitting to the priestly line to be buried, to foreshadow how he's going to become our high priest, and that he himself, his body, will be our sacrifice. This wasn't lost on John the Baptist. In John 1, when he sees Jesus coming, here's what he says He says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus being baptized, he's identifying himself with humanity. He's identifying himself with sinners and offering them his righteousness. Which is why we see this detail in verse 10. Mark writes, as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The heavens were torn open, the Bible tells us. This is immense foreshadowing of the wall between God and humanity being torn open. Deep in the heart of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. It's a place where the presence of God resided and humans were not allowed to go. To go into the Holy of Holies would have been lethal. But you know what? You know what the Bible tells us happened when Jesus died on the cross? Matthew 27, but Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. So right after his death, here's what happened. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earthquake and the rocks were split. That curtain was a 35-foot tall, super-thick veil that covered the Holy of Holies. It was torn, not by humans, because human strength could not do it. It was not torn from bottom to top. It was torn from top to the bottom when Jesus died because Jesus' death makes God's presence available to us. Don't you see it? The heavens being torn open, the spirit descending, God the Father's approval, surrendering to baptism, submitting himself to temptation, overcoming that temptation. Jesus is systematically reversing everything that was ruined in the garden. He's systematically reversing everything that fell apart in the fall. He came to redeem the Imago Dei back to what it was intended to be. He came to be our great high priest, to offer himself on our behalf. He came to seek and save sinners of which we all are. He came on a mission of redemption. So what do we do with this? And good theology is important. But good theology is only good when we respond to it in good ways. And so there's three implications of this. There are dozens, but there's three that I want to share with you today as we build to our close. And the first is this, and it should be the most obvious, that salvation is found in no other name. Now you're going to find as we go through the book, Mark doesn't mess around. He is short, he is brief, he's to the point. He's by far the most efficient of all the gospel writers. There's a lot that you could write about the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. He knocks them both out in just a handful of verses. And so if there's a message that he's saying over and over and over and over again, there's a reason for it. And the message of chapter 1 repeatedly again, 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 is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the reason Mark keeps driving this home is because it's vitally important and because it's exclusive. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life and no one, no one can come to the Father except through me. Acts 4, Peter says before the Sanhedrin of Jesus, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And I'm going to spend a ton of time on this this morning because the whole morning is built to this, but you need to know there's no one else like Jesus Christ. There's no one else who is fully God and no one else who's fully man. There's no one else who could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins other than the one who is fully God and fully man. There's nobody else who's died and defeated their own death. There's no one, literally no one else who has the resume and then the things that Jesus did, his identity and his accomplishments. And what that means is clear. There's no one who can save you other than Jesus Christ. There's nobody who can forgive you. There's nobody who can redeem you. There's nobody who can grant you eternal life other than Jesus Christ. You cannot earn heaven. You cannot earn the forgiveness of God. You cannot find it in religion. You cannot find it in your good works. You cannot find it in yourself, in another human, or another way of thought. It is only through Jesus and Jesus alone because he's the only one who's capable. And so if you have not believed in him, if you have not surrendered your life to him, give your life to him because he's the only one who can do this for you. The second implication is this, is that we have a very personal God I mean, heaven was torn open, the, the, the curtain was torn in two. And to make that possible, God became one of us. He came to walk where it is that we walked. He came to feel what we feel, which means this, that this holy, awesome God of the universe is actually not far off. In fact, if you're in Jesus Christ, then the Bible says that his spirit has taken up residence in you. That's, that's a wondrous thought. Hebrews 4 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. This mean, you know what this means? It means that God never asked you to do anything that he hasn't already done for you. It means that whatever it is you're facing, he knows it and he's been there. He doesn't just have sympathy for you. He has empathy for you. And the result of all this, the fact that, that the, the curtain between us was torn, that, that His Spirit has taken up residence inside of us, that, that He's walked where we walked, that He has empathy. The result of all this is this, if you don't feel as close to God as you used to, He's not the one who moved. If you don't feel as close to God, He's not the one who's moved. And so what you need to do is, get, is, is walk with Him. Return to Him, abide in Him, rest in Him. Him, follow him, pursue him in the ways that he's given us through his word and through prayer and through fellowship with the saints. We have a very personal God, and all that means this: that he deserves more than what we're giving him. Now, that's not a statement that's designed to make you feel guilty this morning. You need to know he deserves more than what I'm giving him. We're all on the same level there, and the reason I know this is true is because he deserves everything. He deserves the entirety of my praise. He deserves all of my devotion. He deserves all of my affection. He deserves all of my pursuit. He deserves all of my service. He deserves all of my cost. He deserves all of my life and attention and everything. There's nobody else, no one who deserves it more than he does. And yet he's not getting all of that from any of us, is he? So what do we do in light of the fact that he deserves more than what I'm giving him? What do we do in light of the fact that he deserves more than what you're giving him? One of the things I think we should always do is we should fight against complacency. We should pray against ever being satisfied with where we are spiritually. In 2 Peter 1, Peter lists a group of characteristics uh, that he wants his readers to add to their knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ. Characteristics like goodness and self-control and brotherly love and affection. At the end of the list, right, this is what he writes. He says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's two things that jump out to me in that verse. Number one, it's possible to be useless and unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So we should want to avoid that. But number two, that two-word phrase is key, increasing measure. Not that you already have them all in tow, right? Not that you're going to have them in full by the end of the day. Not that you're going to overcome all your sins and all your weaknesses and all your temptations by 2 o'clock this afternoon, no, but that you keep adding them in slowly, but surely over time, you will keep coming more and more and more like Jesus. Do you want to know why we talk about going deeper all the time around here? Why we're always encouraging you to take that next step? Yes, it's because the Bible calls you to it. Yes, it's because Jesus deserves it. But it's also because the moment that you stop in your faith, the moment you decide that Jesus has enough of you, moment you decide that this is the line and I'm not going any deeper, I'm not going any farther, you don't actually get to stay there. Because there is no neutrality in faith. You're either getting closer to Jesus or you're getting farther away. And so if you're not pursuing him, you're not going deeper, you're not fighting against complacency, you're not looking for that next step, guess which direction you're going So in light of who He is, in light of all that He's done, in light of His inarguable worthiness, He deserves more than what we're giving Him. And so instead of being just overwhelmed by some pursuit of perfection or trying to overcome literally every one of your sinful hurdles in a moment, can I suggest just a two-step approach? And the first is this, just remind yourself of your identity. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are His 2 Corinthians 5 says that his righteousness, his perfection has been given to you. That's your standing with God that won't change. And so what that means is this, that temptation that you feel to sin, to give in to that sin, that temptation you feel to walk in the flesh and not walk in the spirit, that draw that you feel to serve that idol more than you serve Jesus, those things are not your identity. They're not who you are in Jesus Christ, which means you don't actually have to give in to them. In addition to this, your past does not define you. right? The, the, the ways you've messed up in the past, they don't define you. His grace overwhelms all of this. His blood covers it all. And so preach the gospel to yourself daily and twice if necessary. And remember that because of the grace of Jesus, not because of anything you've earned, but because of the grace of Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. And once you remember that, the second step is this. Just keep taking that next step, no matter how small you think it is. Invite him into this. This is a prayer that you should be praying. God, show me what it is in my life or in me that's, that's unpleasing to you. But show me a new way that I can serve. Show me a, a way that I can be stretched that I haven't been before. Show me somewhere that I can go or someone that I can love on or pray for or share the hope of Jesus with. Show me something that I can fast or or give up or just toss out completely. Show me some kind of step of pursuit, whether it's a reading plan or, or spiritual discipline, something that I can add to my life to get more of you. Ask the question, Lord, what's the next thing? What's the next thing that I can do for you? And by the way, we're here to help you in this. The church of Jesus exists to help you get closer to him. Do not hesitate to ask to meet with one of our staff or elders. We will gladly offer some spiritual coaching and give you some of these next steps. But in the meantime, as you grow, ultimately you won't need us. Because you can just ask him and what he reveals, you can just say yes to it. Man, it's crucially important that our knowledge of God and our knowledge of Jesus is based on the truth that he revealed to us in his word. He is God. Jesus Christ is God the Son. He is fully God and fully man, and He came to save us by offering Himself on the cross, and there is salvation in no other name but His. We need to be clear on those things. But it's also important that our knowledge of Jesus results in the right response to Him. And so surrender your life to Him, believe in Him for salvation if you have not. And follow him and abide in him and never stop taking those steps of pursuit closer to him. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to a close of this service, Lord. I I pray mostly just for some good, holy, righteous discontentment in this room. God, if there's anybody here who's not yet trusted in Jesus alone for their forgiveness, They've they've banked on some religious experience in their past. Uh, They've banked on something that someone else has done to them. They've banked on their own measure of goodness. Whatever it is, their trust hasn't been in you alone. Give them a great discontentment with that. Lord, help them to know how weak and feeble that is compared to the reality of their sin and death. And help them to turn to Jesus for the salvation and forgiveness that is found only in him. Lord, draw them to yourself now. And Lord, if there's anybody here who's done that, who's tasted the grace and knowledge and wonderfulness of Jesus Christ, would you give us a discontentment for our current spiritual reality? Would we never be satisfied with how much uh, of our lives and our heart and our will that you have? Lord, we always want to give you more. May we always want to pursue you more deeply. Lord, would you give us a great discontentment for the idols in our lives, great discontentment for the sins we keep finding ourselves giving uh, giving into. Would you give us a great discontentment for anything that robs our affection of Jesus? And in that discontentment, would you show us the next step, whether it's a step of fasting or throwing away, or it's a step of pursuit, a step of adding, a step of service, a step towards someone else. God, show us that next step that we can take to get more of Jesus into our lives. And God, may you hear from all of us around this room today, yes, as you reveal those to us. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We want to give you some time just to respond uh, to what the Lord may have been doing in your life, what he said to you. This is your time just to spend some time in prayer with him um, and reflect on maybe some things he said to you, revealed to you today. And so... Uh, We want to give you this time. Please uh, take advantage of it. Do not waste it and, uh, and use it to connect with your creator.